Hello and welcome to FireDev, a fireside chat with great people in the industry. And today I have Vlad Stefan Gerge with me. And do you want to do a little introduction, Vlad? Yeah. Hi. Uh, nice to meet you. Um, thank you for the invitation, first of all. Um, I'm happy to have a to have a platform such as this one to to be able to engage in meaningful conversations and uh, maybe learn more about the industry. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, I come from gaming uh, with a with a pretty big experience with uh, with mobile gaming in particular. Um, I've gone through companies such as Electronic Arts, where I actually started my work, um, starting from QA, from testing, where a lot of people start their careers. Um, it's been a pretty interesting ride so far, and it still is. Um, lots to learn. After Electronic Arts, I saw an opportunity at King. Uh, there was a studio in Bucharest back then. Um, I applied and eventually got in. Um, afterwards, uh, after a few months, uh, like six or eight months, I think, uh, there was some sort of an internal contest and uh, I, I got to, to take a good seat, like a golden seat to, to move to Stockholm, to relocate to Stockholm and be a part of that time. I was not aware what, what project that would be. Uh, so it turned out to be uh, the next Candy Crush title that they were planning to release called Candy Crush Soda Saga. Um, yeah, that was the beginning of um, a very, very interesting and continuous learning path for me. And it still is, although I'm in a different company in a di different country. Um, after King, I moved to, to Romania. I was thinking of relocating to Barcelona for so many reasons. I think you can, I think you can imagine. Um, so afterwards, uh, I thought to to relocate back to to Romania to to build something. Um, and part of the vision was to build um, an academy, some sort of an academy, maybe not specifically that but a platform, a forum, a place where people can can learn, can grow their skills, and maybe even get certified for that, or validated that they have the type of knowledge, or they gain that type of knowledge, um, and then use it, use it to grow, use it to, to get better jobs, to, to negotiate better, depending on everybody. Um, and I saw, I did my, my homework and due diligence, as I try to always do, specifically when joining a new company. It's pretty important. Um, so I found Amber, Amber Studio, which was a pretty small studio back then, not even 100 people. Um, and then I joined, and uh, they were really happy to have me. I was super happy to be, to be a part of the team and to learn of their plans for growing and uh, expanding and basically turning it what, what it is today. Um, to give you an idea, from 2013 up to today, uh, from three employees, it went up to 1,200. So it was a pretty interesting growth that I got to be, that I got to witness, to be a part of, to, to invest in and 
to collaborate with my with my colleagues and peers. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's some crazy growth. We'll, we'll unpack the amber side of your career, which is currently where you where you're at in a moment. So, like I said, you worked at EA for almost two years, and you were the QA tester there. You know, yeah. how did you get the job at EA, and what was like that interview process like? If you had an interview, I did have an interview. Um, I was surprised that were no, not more than one interview. Uh, back then, I think it was only one, from what I remember. Um, it's pretty interesting how I got the job. Um, I knew a guy that worked as a tester, and I very much needed a like even a summer job or some 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 form of income for that period. So I asked him politely, "Can you do you have any jobs available for what you're doing? Would I even be able to do that?" Because Newsflash, I was never a gamer. Okay. I, I had games, I had consoles, I had like Nintendos and other things for sure. But I never had like the best computer, like something performant to be able to play all those things that all the games that were coming out and or PS4 or all these things. So I, I didn't get to develop the passion to spend more time than, than I could uh, playing games. Today I am. I I like to think that I'm more of a gamer than I was. Um, yeah, so he kind of helped me uh, understand a few, and he explained, and I looked at videos online about games in general. The interview was fairly easy, um, and I got in. Yeah. Okay, that's good, and like. What sort of questions did they ask on the interview process and how long was the interview for something like a tester? Um, I think it was in total of one hour. And in the first half hour, they were only speaking to me and asking very easy questions like, and also speaking in English so they can understand of my English skills because I needed to report bugs and only in English. Everything was in English. And it's pretty much everywhere uh, for companies that have uh, like a global presence um, or they're multicultural. Um, so to get back to your point, uh, to your question, um, it depends. It depends. Um, Traditionally, what they do or what happens is the first half of the interview, you have a bunch of questions um, asked, basically. Um, and then the other half half of our, half, half of hour, basically, it's uh, they give you a device or an iPod or they give me like an iPhone 4, I think, back then. Um, so I can test anything out of it and basically start reporting bugs however I thought a bug should be reported. It didn't matter how bad or good you were doing it. They were just trying to see how much of it you can do because I had no experience back then. So it was it is okay. It was a it was a fair challenge and I liked it. I, I thought it was nice. Okay. So those games that you were you know testing during your interview process, were they, you know, actual games they were developing or had developed, or were they just random ones off the app store? No, no. So they had their own. Of course, it's Electronic Arts, so 
they have so many IPs that they can choose from. It was a, I think it was a racing game, if I remember correctly. And I think it was a Need for Speed game uh, that was previously released like two years prior to that interview. Um, It was a alpha build that had uh, issues uh, in particular on purpose basically and they had a console option so they can you can restart playing that on and on and on so probably they adapted some sort of build specifically for tester interviews now that i know what's going on years later um that's that's my that's my guess okay yeah that makes sense that they would have you know a specific build because you know if they gave the latest build it might not be very, you know, buggy. <laughs> so, yeah. it's, it's, so it's not necessarily, you know, the best thing to use. Okay, that's, you know, fair enough. And what was your experience like working at EA? Because EA doesn't have the best of reputations. So, like, what was your experience like firsthand? You know how it always depends. Like, the company itself is not a problem. It's leadership usually and bad management or toxic management. or Yeah any other word you want to use. Um, my experience was difficult in the beginning because I had no knowledge of anything, basically. Um, I didn't, I haven't, I haven't had seen um, like the settings part of an Android in depth or what iOS looks like in settings or how do you do stuff on iOS? Like how do you even install something? So it was very nice and kind of a continuous learning experience until I left. Um, it was it was interesting. Uh, the The worst part was that I could never switch from the night shift to the day shift, and you can imagine that uh, it created quite a few um, situations that were uh, not so favorable for me. Like in my personal life, I didn't have time. I was always tired. I was always on the go because I was sleeping during the day and starting to work at six, half past six p.m. or something. It was far, and yeah, it that was a bit unpleasant. But that has nothing to do with uh, with the company. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, why was you, or why was the company having? you know, night shifts, because it's not like a security company where, you know, you need people mm-hmm. securing the, let's say, building day and night, or, you know, a support team necessarily where, you know, you, ne- you need to be on the phones day and night. So why was they doing QA testing at night time? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, but that's a simple answer. Um, distributed teams doing specific uh, specific actions uh, so to give you an example uh, let's say the development team for i don't know what game need for speed just let's just say that for an example maybe the entire development team for that game was in canada but they didn't have testers in canada or enough testers regression testers that we were um, so they had to uh, use let's say, quote-unquote, external resources, distributed resources. So they would reach out to studios that would have, it's a common practice, actually, for studios that have multiple multiple locations and 
the same type of service. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. Yeah, and, and it's also due to the time difference because if the development teams and studios are located in USA, for instance, then you would have a time difference of eight to nine hours that you need to sync on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's fair enough as well. Yeah, because obviously mm-hmm. you've, got, you've got to be... I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing, you know, doing it as a one-off where, you know, you can do in a different you know, time and then you just, you know, loop them back in on the next meeting. But if it's every day, then you need to be able to, you know, get your feedback, get it to them, they get it to you, you know, back and forth yes. few times in the, in the day. Otherwise, instead of four or five times back and forth, it's like max once because <laughs> you're asleep, they're asleep, uh, you know, whilst each of you are working respectively. So, yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. That makes sense. And how much QA testing does EA do, would you say? Because you've worked at a few companies now. Like, how intense is their QA? Um, so I think you had two questions here, like how intense or what was the other one? Sorry. No, just over like how much QA testing do they do? Like, how much emphasis and how important is QA oh, testing a lot. For, a e- lot. For, e- for EA? A lot, a lot. I would say they're doing an amazing job. And people over there are doing a tremendous job and doing with um, with all types of testing, basically, because it's there are new types of testers nowadays. It's not only regression testing; it's DevQA, it's uh, automation, it's many other types of testing. So, I think they are doing a great job. Um, I can't speak for the latest titles in the past years. There have been bugs, of course, but that's with any other type of software. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, fair enough. Yeah. In terms of testing, I have only thumbs up. Okay, that's good to hear then. And what sort of tools did EA you know, leverage and use for their testing? To help you know enhance it, or did they just use like a spreadsheet? Uh, besides spreadsheets and other things, I can't remember correctly what the name it was, but one of the tools that we were working with in collaboration with the development team. So some bugs were recorded in Test Rail, some bugs were in Jira, some bugs were. It depends on the tool that they were using, basically. Okay. They had like two or three max. Yeah. Okay. And what type, because you mentioned Need for Speed, was that the only title that you worked on whilst at EA, or did you work on other ones as well? Other projects, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, so I worked on a variety of titles um, for one and a half years, or however long I was there. Uh, From Need for Speed to Real Racing to FIFA to FIFA Ultimate Team when it was just created back then. Um, it was, I can't remember, I think Bejeweled, there was another game, um, yeah, Madden, like American football, and that was, that was a fun game to learn. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah, I didn't know the rules in particular, so the game helped, and being on it for quite a, quite a while, I had to learn them, so it was an, it was a nice experience, yeah. And fun, for the most part. That's good, then. 
and how did you know EA's approach to testing differ on mobile versus you know more traditional platform like console like consoles mm. yeah uh, so because of the nature of the mobile industry and how how everything works everything is so much faster everything has to be released so much earlier or sooner or it has to be frequent releases whereas in console you have a very different rhythm you work for a long time where you don't release anything but then you release that that title you maybe have a dlc you maybe have patches and stuff but that's about it usually of course it can it can vary nowadays you have many other types of uh, components let's say to to products such as live op events such as uh shops and like all sorts of conversion methods uh implemented by by business intelligence and product owners okay and like did you work on any titles at EA that got cancelled not at electronic arts not at EA okay. no they they had all their internal portfolio of games and they had everything already planned by the time it even got to QA so trust me they were really sure they want to they want to release that or they were just unsure of how 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 safe was that particular version increment uh, that they wanted to release to an already released title usually. Or I got to be almost a part of uh, in sync with the development team. Like we were helping them. They were throwing bugs at us and we were helping them with that. Um, but that that's about it. Um, I had no canceled projects or okay. unreleased titles. Yeah. Okay. And like, Obviously, I'm a developer. I've seen you know, setups for developers and you know artists. What was the setup at EA like for testers? Was there like a tester room where you had a bunch of screens, consoles? Or like, what was yeah. the whole tester setup like? Uh, it was pretty straightforward, as I think it was the entire floor or however many floors they had of testers. Um, there was a majority of testers, at least when I was there in the building versus development teams. Uh, I think there were different support or shared uh, departments also in the, in the building working. Um, it was a cubicle form, um, like with some small walls. So you could have, uh, just a bit of privacy, but nothing to too big like you couldn't see each other next to each other um after a while i think they changed the furniture and the walls were no longer there it was just like uh, i don't know you had two two desks one next to each other and then you had another pair of desks that were facing you you know and then you had like a platform between them but that's a that's the most you would have it was pretty open open space yeah okay and so, yeah, EA, you were the QA tester, then a senior QA tester. How much yeah. actual testing does a senior QA do versus managing, let's say, a team and doing other tasks? Um, so, like, with any other progress you want to make in your career, usually you have to start somewhere. So, at least in that particular scenario, 
you have to start as taking more responsibility first and then also uh, doing the job that you need to do. And that was testing or part-time coordinating or part-time helping the test lead coordinate testing efforts, nothing more. Uh, gathering, doing checks on, on the entire team or, or some people in the team. or It, it, it depended, really. Um, then there was no QA lead, I think, for a while. Uh, so the senior, the senior tester meant you had to take accountability or it was needed for somebody to step up to be an active, an active test lead for a while. And that was a bit unpleasant uh, in the terms of I didn't really see that much progress for myself. I didn't see an opportunity for learning the way I, the way I envisioned, and the way I felt I needed. So I had to stop it there, and that's why I sought uh, different opportunities where I found King. Okay, so talking about King, you worked there for over four years. What was that like, and how did you get that job, and what did you specifically do there? Oh man, that was that was a roller coaster ride and the dream job, to be honest. Um, so to start from the beginning, um, I think there was a, a series of interviews um, that I that I took part of in Bucharest when I after I joined King. Um, they were really particular with the, with the people that they were hiring. Uh, they had a very well thought process of uh, recruitment, interviews, and they were following things like on point, looking on the paper and taking notes and giving each other feedback. And it was a very new, very, very pleasant experience from the beginning. To witness such such change, such openness towards hearing the other person, and it felt radically different from the from the. Uh, it wasn't chaos. It was just very emergent, and it was very time boxed with Electronic Arts. The nature of the job requires you have a time box type of work because you have you know however many hours you have eight hours per day, so you need to make it work somehow. I need to test everything that's that's needed. Um, yeah, and it can it can get pretty stressful and tight at some at, at times. Um, it was all very different in King, uh, and it was a pleasant experience. And it was I felt pretty proud to to be able to get that achievement for myself uh, because I, I I looked up to them to be honest. Uh, then there was the series of interviews I was telling you about. Uh, and some people also left from from that studio, and I also left as a part of a relocation package and to move to Stockholm in Sweden. Um, yeah, and then I got to to learn of of the project that um, I was on. Um, it was a immediate um, greater sense of achievement, so to say. Uh, to give you a bit of details without giving anything from the inside uh, that probably I, I shouldn't. Um, their studio and the studios were made like you would enter Candy Crush Paradise. 
or you would enter Candy Crush. I think you can find this online. I think you can find pictures. I think you can find stuff online that would um, show you a bit of insight on how, how their studios are set up, how however many colors they have and a lot of branding and it's super powerful. It makes you feel, and the Swedish culture also helps a lot with that, helped a lot with the company's culture. Yeah. Okay. And how did you get the job? Uh, I had a friend who just got in there um, working as an analyst as well. And he told me about, we were also um, colleagues in Electronic Arts. We shared, I think, a project together at some point, And we became friends. Um, yeah, and he told me about this great place he's working at. And people are like this. And I didn't take him that much seriously, too seriously in the beginning. Because, you know, people can exaggerate sometimes. And, you you know, you tend to not believe that it's it's a good experience versus the average experience that you that some people at least have and personally I had as well. Um, so I became more and more interested as he was telling me more things or he was posting pictures on Facebook or something like that. And I was seeing like, this guy is going everywhere. Okay, not to mention that he's having fun at his workplace. So I immediately wanted to take my shot, you know. He said that there might be seats available. Uh, of course, he made a recommendation. Uh, I I updated my CV, and then I sent it to him, and yeah, I was called for an interview. Actually, there were six interviews in total, because I, I told you they, they have a very meticulous process of seeing how you resonate with their values and principles and culture and all the aspects that that are very healthy to take in consideration actually okay and what were those interview stages like what was the process like oh it was quite a while ago so i can't really remember too many particularities um besides what i just said like they would they would have um they would try to measure and see how how much you would embody certain values that they had, company values. Um, uh, probably some some control questions uh, to or some trick questions. Um, yeah, and then they talked to me and asked me about myself. They wanted to get to know me, and then they talked about their area. Like the QA manager talked about his job a bit and about himself and. How, how his role is impacting everybody in a positive way and what the constraints are and those kind of things. I, I thought, although it was a long process of recruitment and until I finally got hired, um, I still thought it was, I still respected the process. Okay. And you said you worked on Candy Crush. Did you work on any other non-Candy Crush titles at King? Um... Yes, for a non-release title. So, as I said, in Electronic Arts, I didn't get to be a part of that. In King, I was a part of a few unreleased titles or undeveloped or cancelled projects. Um, but that was for quite a, quite a, not such a long time. Um, but the main titles, yes, were uh, 
the two Candy Crush games, um, the Stockholm, or the one in Stockholm, Candy Crush Soda, which is the second biggest title in in their portfolio, and then the third one, uh, Candy Crush Jelly Saga, which is the third one um, released after after Soda. They now have four, I think, or more. I can't speak because I haven't looked at those games for quite a while. I do still have Candy Crush on my phone though, and I I, I go to it every now and then. Okay, yeah, that's, that's nice. And what you know, what sort of employee benefits you know did King give? Because King, you know, is a huge company now, and you know, Candy Crush, you know, brings in a lot of even still to this day brings in a lot of money for King. So I'm guessing they probably provided some nice benefits to their employees. I'll tell you this. Um, besides fruits and everything in the office and a fun office and colorful one that I already mentioned, um, I will tell you that it was, sometimes it felt like more than enough. But when you look at the industry standards, not locally, like in Europe or like big companies like Microsoft or Blizzard or other places. Companies like in Silicon Valley, Google. like Google. Yeah, no, yeah, maybe those are too high. You know, they're okay. kind of an isolated exception, like a top exception. But as you go down, you see that there is quite a bit of difference between between an average and what King was doing for people. So I would say King cared a lot about their culture. So that meant they invested a lot in people. And that showed in many areas. I will tell you that. I was very okay. Everybody was. Okay, that's good. And because obviously there's so many mobile titles out there, there's so much competition. How did King try and stay, and, and they seem to be succeeding still to this day, stay on top of all that competition? And did they, you know, regularly download other games that were popular from studios like Ketchup or EA or yeah. you know whoever and try and either copy or learn from those studios. Yeah, Pokemon Go came out and exactly. so many big titles, so many big titles came out yeah. um on App Store. Clash of Clans as well, I remember that was at a similar time when Candy Crush came out. So you know all those titles were making yeah. huge amounts of money. Well uh what I can tell you is that uh, from what I've seen uh, and learned about uh, the experience there, is I saw an alignment, uh, at least in in a few areas related to how to build Candy Crush, how to build a franchise, how to expand, and so on and so on and so on. Um, there was a willingness and uh, like a not perfect sync but it was it was alignment between people that were coming into the company uh and leadership and business as well so it was this this functioning trio that was working and it was it was all about the people that got to be creative got to be innovative it was all about the business people that were really taking their time and considering everything and everybody's point um and product people leadership people which were listening to all the other areas and their own opinion and probably other other aspects as well so they were really invested uh in in getting literally the best result 
also while practicing healthy processes. Okay. And, yeah. you know, I've heard the gaming industry is notorious for paying, you know, at least developers and I think artists less than what they probably could get at, you know, an equivalent tech company. How is that like for QA testers? What's the, what's the QA tester pay like at companies like EA and King compared to if you was to go to a tech company? Um, there is a difference. I'll tell you this in a short, in a few words. Um, but I think we also need to take into consideration that there's a, such a big difference in, in the nature of the business in both areas as well as the nature of the work. So one can be emergent or needs to be emergent. One can be predictable and can do like waterfall and doesn't need to do agile. And all of, all these particularities uh, factor in, basically. Um, I think um, there is a difference, but there's also a difference because the industries cannot compare. Like I, me as a hiring manager in my company, um, I face this issue quite a lot. Uh, and the issue is, it's either I have people in my team that are approached, like are approached by, by HR representatives from other companies. And guess what? It's a bank company. It's an automotive company. It's any other tech company that would automatically have higher pay because the nature of the business is like the volume is much more consumed and much, much more distributed. So, of course, the revenue would be much higher. Then again, it depends how each company's uh, leadership uh, manages that profit and, and income. Okay, that's fair enough. It's good to hear, you know, your opinion on it. So, most recently, you, you're at Amber. Tell us about that and what Amber does. Because I feel like a lot of listeners will have heard of EA and King. But Amber, maybe, maybe not. It's interesting you say that they might have heard of, about King because my my strange experience was that people don't really know that much about. Probably they do today, but when I was working there, if I said King, they were like, mm, "Okay, go on. What else? Candy Crush. Oh, okay. So." Basically, what I'm trying to say is the Candy Crush brand was so powerful mm-hmm. and so widespread that it minimized the King brand. And, of course, they promoted this everywhere and King, King, King everywhere. But still, people uh, were... Uh, that was their that was their source. Can we stop for a second? Yeah, that's fine. Can you hear the noise here? No, no, I, it's gone now. Oh, but it might start again because, um, yeah, there you go. So apparently in Romania, there's this strange bad habit from neighbors to just not care about anybody and just start drilling into walls, man. It's (laughs) crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And I think this is a downside from not being at work, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess fair enough. So, yeah, like we were saying, you're Amber. Tell us about that and what they do. Um, So, Amber is, interestingly, not a game development company. 
but it's um, it's a game development services, but not limited to for gaming, for games, for products that can be gamified. Um, from they they have a range of services from full development products to co-development to porting to specific art uh, projects. Uh, all these we're doing with partners and clients. Uh, we have done some. We have tried some uh, original IPs that were that were ours and are still ours. Uh, we have a lot to learn, of course, with with each release. Uh, but I think everybody is uh, everybody is more than proud that we have achieved that. Not being a game development company, I repeat, I, it's it's quite tough to to be an agency for development services, specifically even in gaming and in mobile, um, and build something because it comes down to revenue, right, and profit. So I think that was that was pretty good. Um, that we had the opportunity to have those pockets of uh, opportunity, let's say, uh, pockets of money, basically, to be able to develop uh, our own IPs. And we still have that in plan. Um, I can't reveal anything, of course, but uh, I know for sure that we are we are more than interested and in, uh, invested in, in building this for ourselves. Okay. And, you know, I've noticed this. I see a lot of top-tier people that work at companies like King, EA, Ubisoft. Yeah. They go over to Amber. Like, there's been a few people that I've been talking to to come onto the podcast, you know, yourself being one, and a few others. Yeah. And they're currently working at Amber. Like, what is it about Amber that's attracting people, would you say? Um, I think there are a few things. Uh, at least that's what I've learned so far. Um, and I think they're in no particular order. Oh. Sorry, the noise. It's um, fine. Should we take a pause or? Um, no, no, we can carry on. It seems like this individual wants to keep drilling or, or <laughs> for, for the rest of the day. So, you know, it's fine. Can you, you can uh, clean that in post? Uh, I can try and clean it as you know, much as possible, but it's still, I can still hear it well, your voice, so oh. it's not too bad. Okay, I'm trying to be as close to the mic as possible. Okay, let's let's restart the, the segment. Okay, yeah, so I was saying, you know, you see a lot of top-tier people, they go over to King, EA, I'm not, I mean, sorry, they go from King, EA, Ubisoft, over to Amber, like, what is it about yeah, Amber that's, yeah. you know, attracting people? I'm seeing it a, like a, a lot on LinkedIn because uh, that's how I'm communicating with people to get them onto the Fire Dev podcast. And the man that I'm seeing uh, and, and, you know, people from all these big studios, studios that generally you would think that people would want to go there and that would be it for them. Uh, and they're going to Amber. And I hadn't really heard of Amber that long ago. So, yeah. like, what's drawing people away from these studios? It's not one studio, it's a multiple, you know, studio, like, to Amber. And you said Amber's grown for, what, like, three people about 10 years ago to 1,000 people now? It's 1,200 people, I think, in many locations across the world. Um, yeah, you can find this on our website. Um, yeah, take a look. 
Okay. Maybe maybe it's interesting. You'll find the full history there, and of course, many particularities. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's grown a lot. Uh, initially, initially, of course, there were only three people that started this, um, and they came from Electronic Arts, from the same Electronic Arts studio that I used to be a tester in. Just to give you a reference. Okay. Yeah, or they had business to do with that studio. Uh, depends on the person now, because people come from different areas of business, even if they come from Electronic Arts or Ubisoft or Gameloft or any other company or King. Yeah, so um, why people are coming to Amber? Um, first of all, it's familiarity. For people that have worked with each other in the past, like for instance, uh, for for executives, like our our uh, our chairman Mihai Pohonsu, um, is basically drawing a lot of people in. You know, a lot of people want to be a part of this, and they want to have a opportunity to work with Mihai. They work maybe with him and many other colleagues in the leadership team. They have worked together in the past. They had. Very nice experiences, um, and or they didn't get to work that much in the past, and they they saw this as a great opportunity. Like I would want to work with Blood because in King I didn't have a chance to to work to be on to to work on issues like this. We were, you know, uh, he was doing art, or I was doing Scrum Master job, and it was quite different. So, and the next thing is the opportunity the vast opportunity of developing and also learning to develop um, such a large variety of games, such a large variety of games, from small iterations, small things, to basically full product that can go to one to two years. Okay. Oh, fair enough. And so you're talking about you know your experience you know, from all these companies, what tools would you recommend for a, you know, a gaming startup to enhance their, you know, productivity, their workflow, and which tools or types of tools would you stay, uh, you know, would you say to stay away from? Um, okay, for companies that are starting up, that's an interesting, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I will answer with, no particular brand, no particular software. Whatever helps the most, but it has to also help the others understand the information there. Like if it's a Google spreadsheet, make it shareable, make it online. If it's Jira, if it's Trello, if it's whatever people want to use, um, that would be my recommendation. It has to make sense. It has to be easy to use in the beginning. It can get more complex afterwards, but in, at least in the beginning for startups, for people that are starting out or just starting the job in project management or Scrum Master or any other project management role, um, I would recommend um, just starting with something simple, something to, to uh, teach you the exercise of moving tasks around, seeing everything in columns, looking at the Kanban board, looking at the Scrum board, looking at a backlog, and just getting familiar with with simple concepts and also learning on the side. 
Okay. And yeah. are there any tools that you would say stay away from just because they're just not suited or they're just too overcomplicated when you're yeah. so small? Of course, it depends on everybody's capacity for for learning tech and tools and how to how to configure them and how to operate them. Um, probably, if you're like a tester starting out in the business, don't go to ClassRail. I think that's super complex and very very. Um, it can get to many deep layers. Um, Jira has shown to be very difficult to understand um, because it has so many options and you can customize it in so many hundreds of ways. And people going from a company to another, of course, they will not see the same practice. Of course, they will not see the same workflow. Of course, they will not see, see the same configuration. So many times when you switch from a company to another or even as a company starting out, you probably want to adapt to some industry standard tool that your clients are working with, or you want to work with if you're a, if you're self-funded and you're developing products for yourself. I would say stay away from complicated tools that have so many options that make you derive from from the simplicity of of the act. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a fair enough point. Because if let's say, you know, like you're saying, you know, the act if the act literally is to, you know, set a task, let's say for yourself, and it's a five word task with like a couple of lines of description and that's all you need yeah. because there's only like two of you, you know, on the team and then you don't really need, you know, tracking of hours, you know, tracking yes, of, of sprints tracking of you know epics tracking of you know this and that and every little thing that you can see on jira and then cost all the customization on top of it because you might end up spending an hour possibly yeah. or, or hours a week trying to just set these options whereas you could maybe do two or three of those tasks out of let's say 10 tasks a week just from the time that you wasted uh, you know, on trying to, you know, customize, you know, those options. So yeah, you're right. It it depends on, you know, what you're doing and if it's taken away from, you know, time, then definitely. So tools like you said, tools like Jira are pretty complex. They can be overkill for small companies, especially, you know, really fast moving companies. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. I have seen st- no, I've I've been in startups and in small companies that were I think 10, 20, 30 people at most, and they they already knew how to operate Jira to their to their best ability, of course, and for that specific need that they had. And it wasn't too complex. The need wasn't too complex for them. So they didn't need to go that far into learning themselves. They had projects configured. They had almost everything done. When I came in, I just coached the team and coached the product owner and uh, the business owner and that's kind of it everything was set up so it can be that it can be that it depends the people on the people that you have inside because you can get this one person that knows the entire system and can already help you with that you know what i mean or yeah. Yeah. you don't and you just build it yourself however you can okay so for that example that startup example 
did they, you know, the people working on there, did they come from an environment where they already knew it or did a lot of them learn it at that company and they just managed to do it really well? Both. both. I would say both. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So in the scenario where, let's say, let's say five, maybe ten people where they never use the tool like that, maybe they're not that far out of university, they've had the odd job here and there, but they haven't used those tools. What other tools would you recommend? Because obviously, there's tools like Trello, for example. Yeah, that's great. Obviously, you know, you know, offer a great deal of customization, but it's more than enough just to track tasks. And then the spreadsheets, and you know, some people are, I know that you, you still use pen and paper heavily. Like, what tools would you, you know, recommend? As as I think, as you said, and that's a great question. I wanted to to get to that point as well. Um, it's about simplicity. So it can start from a simple pen and paper. It can start as simple as, I don't know, just writing things in boxes on a piece of paper and just grouping them in a, in a singular task, let's say. You just draw a line around them and that's a task. You know, you don't need anything else. Uh, if you have, like, uh, you want to invest in something really minimal, you can just get a pack of Post-its you don't have to have a whiteboard. You can. You don't have to have all these things at your place or at your at your office. They stick to anything. Specifically, your desk or your monitor, or you can get creative with that, of course. So you can even have those. I saw many teams sticking post-its on windows in meeting rooms, and they work just fine. So it can it can get as simple as that. Yeah. But I, what I would not recommend is trying to memorize and assume that basically the team already knows what they need to work on or everybody knows that what they need to do. That's, that's very risky. I would recommend not going that path, the memory path or the trust path. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I, I think unless there's maybe just two of you and those two, let's say, one's you know, a programmer, one's an artist, and let's say half the tasks are, you know, developer, or half the tasks are, you know, art-related, then it's a pretty easy to know, you know, who's doing what. Obviously, you still probably need some structure of which tasks to do first and priority, but you can, you know, it's not as important. But obviously, once you get, you get into, let's say, 10, 15 people, they're, the say, multiple coders, multiple designers, multiple this, that. It, yeah, definitely having some sort of structure where you're saying, you know, you guys handle this or you handle this. This is the priority. Discuss it with them is definitely very important. But like yeah. you said, having a system that you know will work and repeatedly work. Because I remember speaking to a friend of mine a, a couple of years ago, and I remember we would always, you know, try different, you know, note-taking apps and tools. And I remember asking him, mm-hmm. what's the current note-taking app you're using? And he said, yeah, exactly. uh, and I, he said to me, pen and paper, he, he, he said, that shit never needs an update. He, he, like, it yeah. just works. I put the it pen just in, works. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I was like you, you've got a point. As long as your you know, pen has ink, <laughs> it, it just works. Man, you can use anything nowadays. Mm. Literally anything that, that leaves a mark on a paper. It's oh, yeah. as simple as it's as simple as that. It's as simple as taking notes on your phone. Everybody has a phone nowadays. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Everybody has a note function or a note app 
Or if not, you can just install one. There are many on app on app stores. So it depends, I think, on how willing you are to adopt that type of um, work work ethic or way of working, so to say. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Uh, okay, so talking about like Agile and Scrum, why has Agile and Scrum become so popular with companies all around the world? And what does it bring to the team that other methodologies don't? Oh, interesting. You're getting to the spicy questions. Yeah. Uh, I like it. Um, I think there are two main, very main reasons, big, big, big reasons that I could, um, that I could learn so far, at least. Um, unfortunately, I think the one, the majority of, of, Objective or or need for uh, adoption of agile or agile transformation, as many companies are doing today, is because it's cool, or because other companies are doing it, or because stakeholders or other people, key people in the company, have learned about some aspects of it. Uh, there's still nowadays a big, big confusion from leadership to any role, basically. Um, to give you an example, Agile equals Scrum. So there's still, like, they're synonyms, you know, but they're not. They have, they're very different things. So even even giving that small example is something we need to start improving on when we, when we think about that. But the success um, as a second reason for, for the adoption of this is it actually works better but it works better because of the nature of the markets of products. You know, nowadays everything is so accelerated and I don't mean speed. I also mean speed, but I mean fast decision-making, um, planning for very uh, frequent small releases. Like you're looking at mobile industry, you have to have frequent releases. So what's, what's related, what can offer this type of, releases to meet your demands when when you look at methodologies and frameworks you find that maybe the most appropriate is scrum or kanban as a working methodology or it really depends on the nature of the project or product and the company how that's set up to to deliver those yeah i mean i I like that you made the point that Agile, uh, again, I'm not saying they're the same, but, you know, it, they, they can sometimes go hand in hand. Agile and Scrum, because it's popular, companies, you know, are jumping on board. So, yeah, because yeah. sometimes I do see companies and I feel like they're adopting it, even though it might work out, not from the perspective of, oh, they analyzed it and they felt like this was, you know, the best, you know, thing to do, but because it, it's the in you know, thing, and it's a lot easier to, you know, say to your manager or your higher up, you know, we're going to go down this route, uh, you know, instead of this alternative route or make something up ourselves because, you know, it's, you know, it's a safer bet. Everyone else is doing it. You know, this company is doing it, this company is doing it. And then yeah. the manager's thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I've heard of those companies. I like those companies. We want to emulate their success. So, yeah, let's go with it. So, yeah, I, I think it's good that you made that point, even though you're obviously invested and you, you know, you're, around those you know techniques you know to acknowledge that sometimes it is just because it's popular yeah sometimes 
It's because of that. But there is a third option here. It's internal. So coming from from the inside, from let's say bottom up, leadership becomes aware of this proposal. Let's become agile. Let's start working in this way, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So you have a lot of people within the company already giving you a buy-in, already proposing to leadership. That's super rare and that's not so common. But again, it also divides into two options here. And one, it gets implemented, the happy path, and it works and they actually learn and they develop. But the other most common one is it gets proposed. It It's not actually understood. Um, biases are put in place and at the end of the day, if we have an emergent um, way of working, so to say, uh, and people management and product delivery, you will not really be able to have even the time or the focus to to be able to dedicate uh, dedicate learning hours or go to trainings or actually, you know, well, what's the Scrum thing about or what why are they doing sprint planning in that way or what is this with points and there's so many aspects that are picked on um and it results in a cherry picked framework um that is most usually most commonly probably dysfunctional okay and at what point in a company's journey and size should it really focus on these methodologies like Scrum and, you know, other stuff? Because if, let's say, you're starting out, you know, you barely got an idea, you're one or two people, I think... That's great. Yeah, that's great. If you don't have an idea, then you, when you look at frameworks and methodologies, you'll find that um, Scrum is perfect for that. It helps you iterate, it helps you explore. You don't have... You basically need to release whenever you plan to release let's say if you're building your own product like we are doing at amber you have to have a release date an end date for that project commitment okay so so you think it should be used even if you're let's say you dropped her out of your job and you're looking to create your own startup you don't have anything right now and you're just trying to figure things out you think these tech methodologies should be used from the start? It depends on your experience to apply those. Because as I was, I, I'm not sure I said before, but Scrum being a framework and nothing more. It's not a set of rules on how to do things. It's a, it's a frame. Uh, it's like a box, uh, and then within that box, uh, you you get to develop, you get to create, basically. Um, so I think it really depends on what their need is, uh, because the need being to explore, to learn, to brainstorm, to, um, to basically come up with new ideas and such, probably Scrum is not, uh, best fit for that. Um, but maybe brainstorming techniques or product, uh, product vision canvases or user story mapping could be a good technique. Um, I would maybe apply techniques or tactics or specific workshops or learning sessions to help the team learn how to do this and leadership as well before you start developing something and using Scrum. Because however much you, you discover and brainstorm at the beginning, 
that doesn't mean that's how the product will turn up, you know? Of course not. It's never like that. Almost never. Yeah. Okay. And at what size of a company, because you're a scrum master, is a scrum master required? Because a startup of two, you know, it's it's not needed. You know, there's two people, they're just starting out. Let's say if they're bootstrapping a company of 10, I would say it's not needed in my opinion because the individuals and managers, you know, can handle the responsibilities of project management, you know, the scrum responsibilities. But there must be a point that it's detrimental to handle it yourself and it's better to have someone else come in. So what, where do you think that line is? It's a good question. It's, it's a really good question. And I'm happy you said that. Um, I think, um, so I would say my opinion is a bit different from yours. Um, having been a Scrum Master in the past, uh, working with people that need to practice Scrum and be a Scrum Master and wear this hat in their teams, um, although they also have this project management aspect of, of their job, um, right from day zero, I would say. Um, because the Scrum Master accountability or role, uh, how you are, however you want to call it, comes with so many hidden features, bonus features, so to say, uh, and things that cannot be witnessed right away, but some of them can. So the way the Scrum Master um, learns to facilitate meetings versus just a traditional project manager, uh, how a Scrum Master looks at team health and coaches people and teaches people about Scrum and the framework and how to do that better. Uh, how the Scrum Master challenges. The the people aspect, the, the people um, aspect of the role is why I would have this person as fast as, as soon as possible to help you set up the entire system, basically, to help you with the tool, if they have tool knowledge, tools knowledge, of course, like you would have somebody with Atlassian knowledge, with Jira and Confluence. That would be very valuable to have in the beginning. And many Scrum Masters already know this type of, this type of, they have this type of skill because they need to manage their own project settings and configurations in their project. So however many projects they have, that's probably however many configurations they need to go through. And that's a lot for some people. At least I'm looking at my team, you number. They are just brilliant at doing that. Of course, nobody's perfect, but in such a short amount of time, they have uh, they have managed to really learn and get a hang of things. And it's not easy. It's really not easy. Okay. Like to actually go and configure and be an administrator. And I think probably a lot of people will, will understand when I'm saying project administrator. Um, it comes down to many tiny checkboxes and many settings that need to be made and taken into account so that even your project data is working fine or you don't have a issue on the board or such. Okay. But still, I'm like, I want to really want a bit more concrete. Like when is, you know, the practical point to obviously as soon as possible, but, you know, as soon okay, as... Okay, so that's, yeah, that was ideal. I give you that. Uh, in more practical terms, um, 
the, the minute you have a stable project, like a contract or something real going on, I would look at uh, maybe a business analyst or a product owner or both, or depending on the product, maybe some somebody from engineering or design or it depends on the product here. So we'd have one product person, one data and product person, and one sort of a creative or tech-oriented person in the very beginning. Uh, probably a UX you would want to have, um, such as like a, I would say maybe maybe product owner and a UX, just to say very generically, or instead of UX, somebody from engineering, from programming. Afterwards, if you know you need to staff up the team, then I would hire a Scrum Master. Okay, so initially have someone that's obviously in an overall leadership kind of position already that can take on the responsibility. So you're saying, you know, the role is important, but it might not be necessary to have a person that just does that role. They could take on the responsibilities, but know that those are responsibilities they need to take on. Like if there's two, three people in a company, there's going to be one at least that's going to have to take on, you know, finance, for example, because that's going to have to be, you know, done in a way you know, exactly. tax yeah. and all that stuff, especially if you are, you know, making some money. So, okay. Uh, I think that's fair it depends. Enough. It depends on how small the company is set up to be. But in the very beginning, I think people that have this type of skill that they can do accounting, they can do some admin work, they can do an interview, they can do something else. That's probably what people are looking for, or that's probably the assembly in the beginning. When just when starting out the company. Okay. And moving on to talking about like tools and that one of the issues I had when I was at university, you know, after I finished, not when I was there, mm-hmm. but it was that there was a lot of stuff they just didn't, you know, cover. I feel like they should have talked and maybe gone over one or two project management tools, tools like Jira, you know, tools like, you know, GitLab, GitHub, you know, they did do code repository stuff, but it wasn't that, it, it was like briefly glanced over, considering how important that is and other aspects of, you know, just working somewhere, you you know, you might be there for eight hours, but I say one hour break, seven hours working, assuming you are doing the full seven hours and not, you know, just messing about or, you know, just trying to pass the time. In a big company, you'll do probably a fair bit of time in, project management tools and you know get you know you know code repository tools especially when there's problems and errors coming along so there's so much stuff they just don't cover and teach you like why do you think that is and how do you think that could be improved to integrate that into let's say a games programming course for example at uni um that's a great question that's really a great question um i think universities and Academia, so to say, um, colleges, they have, uh, I'm, I'm just assuming right now, I don't know for sure. Uh, my assumption is that we have different understandings of the same notion or different ways of, of um, teaching that type of information because it's two perspectives. So one can be taken literally, one can be taken metaphorically, you know, and it will be two very different results. 
So I think they're coming in uh, related to this from a different angle. Uh, to give you an example, like instead of saying you could use Jira because it has the Gantt and it has the roadmap feature and you can do clicks and everything nice and colored. Um, you can have uh, different options lesser than this. Uh, and again, it, it really depends on so many variables. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it does. Uh, that is true. But I think there needs to be a bit more you know, representation of those tools and you know, talking about them, covering them. And I think one of the ways they could just do it is not necessarily by teaching it, but by having more, like this is one thing that I really wanted when I was at university was to work on a project with other people, which we did, but we only did it within, because I did programming with other yeah. programmers, but yeah. they, they had game design, you know, game artists, you know, engine sound engineers. They had those courses for those people. So it would have been great to do a project, if not a big one, but a project with, you know, a designer or an artist with a sound mm -hmm. engineer to collaborate. So one, it teaches you how to, you know, obviously talk and relate to people, uh, you know, the project management, and then say, you know, this is the project management tool that you're going to use. And this is, you know, the code repository tool that you're going to use. And, you know, part of it, you're going to make sure that you're doing proper commits on a regular basis. You've got to make sure you're, you know, if it's a two-month project, doing, let's say, weekly or bi-weekly sprints, and you're putting the appropriate information on there. And that way you'll just you will just learn it because you have to work with you know another you know other people in a team. So I think it's not just about okay, here's an actual module on how to learn Jira. That yeah. may not be the best way of doing it and that might actually be a waste of time. But incorporating it, you know, within you know the actual process because Within they did the material yeah yeah because they mm -hmm. didn't teach us how to use powerpoint or word or these tools but we used word we used powerpoint or you know you know word processing and you know you know tools for presenting we used those tools and we got better at using those tools just because we had to so yeah i, I think there's so many ways they can do it without one hindering the time they already because three years is a long time but it's not that long either you know considering how much they're trying to teach you uh, potentially at some universities but yeah you know incorporating it within the actual flow and then maybe even interacting with you on those tools because instead of interacting with you on a platform like blackboard or moodle or some other education you know online yeah. system use slack or discord or you know these tools that you know you use in industry use yeah. them to communicate i mean I, I all the points to you and more even as i was saying before to to stick to only my experience and my my hypothesis at least and how i learned about things going through high school going through college and again then getting into the industry it comes down to budgets, first of all. So if universities do not have the type of budget, imagine, try to put yourself in their shoes for, for a second. They're giving you the most amount they can, and probably they could do a lot better. But they're giving you the curriculum is set in such a way 
that, as I was saying before, yes, they say about project management tools, but they talk about a tool like a like a hammer, you know, like you would have ganting to sort to to solve out some specific issues with timeline and planning and long term planning. They don't talk about what apps support or what to use specifically because to be honest there's so many apps today there's so many so there's so many software websites uh mobile apps you have so many options today imagine just how long it would take to give a few examples to give a reference of some examples in apps um then people can start complaining the app that i'm using has not been covered in uni you know, they're just covering the most important mainstream ones like Jira and et cetera, et cetera, and Microsoft, what? So that wouldn't be also helpful, probably. So they're sticking to more of a generic approach from a different perspective, still trying to give you a tool that can help you sort that problem out and also understand that part of the learning um, curriculum, so to say. That's what I would say. Yeah, I mean that's fair enough. I think those are, you know, some you know good points. So again, moving on, I you know before we spoke, you know, you know before this podcast when we spoke a few days ago, you mentioned that you're working on a podcast yourself. You know, yeah. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about that. So, so what's that All going right. to be about? Um, yeah. Thanks for for asking. Um, it's going to be about um gathering teachers, gathering mentors, gathering trainers, gathering any form of um, role or position, so to say, uh, that they uh, get to teach other people, they get to collaborate, they have a team, they're managers, they're leaders in their companies. Uh, you have some sort of interaction with people or you, there's a need for you to, to teach them something or they, there's a need for them to learn from you. Like, uh, for instance, like a gymnasium teacher. What is what's like for her to to handle um, kids and you know as they're growing up and they're they're changing, ever changing, and it's a hectic time for any teenager, basically. But my point is, I want to challenge also uh, and maybe challenge other people to adopt new ways. Um, so it would be a format with a few people, maybe two, three, four, I don't know yet, um, like a fireside chat format uh, where we get to discuss and maybe promote uh, very interesting ideas. To give you an example that I've learned about last year, it's a high school teacher. Um, I don't remember the, the city she was in, the city she was from, in Romania, actually. And she's become quite famous because she tried to think of how could she solve a worldwide problem with, in, in schools. Like, how can you get kids, children, students to read an entire book, to read the uninteresting books, to read all those books that are stuck to the curriculum of learning? You know, you've gone through those yourself. Many probably you didn't like or you did. It really depends. I hate them. There, were, <laughs> there you go. There you go. So probably not so many people liked every book that had to be done or read for school. Nobody likes to do assignments and 
long essays and what's the significance of the title and you know that's too deep so she came up with this very innovative idea brilliant idea of using what you have in your hand right now what you have at hand and she looked around the room and she saw that every kid was on the mobile phone so she thought about it for a bit and she brainstormed a bit with a few people i think um then she released a challenge before an easter holiday i think or before semesters uh, in school so she gave out a few titles like a few books and said pair up with make a team and do a trailer do a trailer on your phone do a reenactment and do a trailer or a teaser trailer that would promote this book and she said nothing else she didn't even mention read the book she didn't focus any effort on or any highlight on or emphasis on that the result is not only that they that they were so excited to do it but it became uh, a rivalry between be, between classrooms between other classes between other schools or high schools now nowadays i think it's the third edition it might have been this year uh of an actual festival so it got so big in the last years this concept got so widespread and adopted in schools and high schools that so many teams from all around the country are really really refreshing their page when the titles get released it's one individual title per team so they have to make sure that they get the title that they want probably so they have to be there and it in 4 minutes uh, the last record for her was i think 200 titles gone in less than 4 minutes everybody had one all the teams were made and there's a contest and everybody gets to show their trailer and they get to act they get to reenact and it's so so wonderfully thought out and simple and that's the kind of ideas i'm i'm trying to explore and try to share among people uh, within the podcast um yeah i called it the method that always works okay that's sounds interesting and when can we expect that to hit spotify google podcast and other platforms so the planned release is for q2 2023 um i will, of course i'll start advertising and marketing a bit earlier but um yeah that's that's the current plan i'm still working on branding a bit i'm still working on a few uh polished ideas here and there um and on the tools part as well i'm also trying to learn how to do exactly what you're doing right now and how to capture everything and how to edit and looking at videos online and yeah i'm taking it step by step because i don't want to uh rush anything it has to be it has to be impactful so that's what i'm aiming for impactful and a true learning experience Okay, that's good. Yeah, so like you're saying, obviously, you know, I'm doing this, and this is, I mean, the episode we're recording is scheduled to be episode twenty, and uh, you know, obviously, since episode one, learned a lot about the tools, about editing, and you know, the management side and research, and just you know, all, all, all sorts of stuff. And this is actually this is the first episode. that I'm doing where because I've got a office in my house where I do all my work from and usually I sit on my computer chair 
at my desk with my desktop. And, you know, I, I, because I've got like a small two-seater sofa in my office, I, mm-hmm. I, I'd fancied for a while being able to do the podcast because it's a bit more, you know, relaxed. I'm not coding. I'm just sort of sitting back and being in a computer chair, you know, it's a pretty nice chair, but it's not the same as sitting on a sofa with your feet up on a you know, footstool. Yeah, so I, I, I thought, you know, I want to be able to sit down on the sofa and do this. So this is the first episode where I've got, because on my main computer, I've got a blue Yeti, I think the Blackout Edition or, you know, the Pro uh-huh. Mic, another black one. And then nice. I had a regular blue Yeti mic, which is pretty similar overall, to be fair, which was the first one I had. And that was in the loft because when we moved here, my, me and my wife last year, uh, you know, a bunch of stuff still in the loft. And I thought, you know, I'll go and grab that. I knew I had another mic on again, not as good as the one I've got on the other thing, but I knew like, you'll get the job done and I'll buy a better one once I, you know, I'm doing it consistently on the sofa and it's a bit more warranted. So quickly got this out before our podcast, you know, set it up, cable it up, check the audio, it seemed all right. So yeah, this is the first one that I'm actually doing on my laptop instead of on the nice. desktop, sitting nice. down and yeah, overall it does feel nice. And that's stuff that you'll just, you know, just go through again, where it's tools or where it's set up or where it's sit, sitting down. And I would say, you know, as soon as you, you know, as possible, start recording doing episodes because the first episode i did i recorded never aired because i didn't yes. use them i'm expecting i'm expecting that yes and, I mean, the reason i mean the episode went really well it wasn't even that there was a problem with the actual content the content was amazing half of the recording or just a bit over half didn't get recorded so because i I'm, i use zencaster now and i have since episode one but that particular recording i use a plugin via discord and that was what i was going to be using if that had worked but it didn't work very well and as a result i you know again less more than half the recording just wasn't present uh, but again, that's just stuff that you, you know, learn. And for myself personally, I recorded five episodes before I actually launched. And yeah, you, were, you were ready to release something. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I've learned about getting a buffer of episodes and themes and depending on your format or guests on the show. So, uh, yeah, I'm as I said, I'm doing my homework and doing my due diligence. It helps a lot, all these tips and all this insight. So thank you. Thanks a lot for for this. Yeah, of course, no problem. So yeah, just you know, just get started as soon as you can, but you know, it is important that you do get that buffer because again, you don't know how long it might take, you know, to get one guest and the next guest and the next guest and your exactly. process will improve where you go for, you know, looking for those people will change and improve. So yeah, it's 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 very important because right now, uh, you know, the podcast law airs every Thursday, five a.m. GMT time, and there hasn't been one week since episode one that that has been missed, and nice. including this. Congratulations! Po- I mean, thank you. Like, and hopefully it keeps up. And including this podcast episode, this is scheduled to go live. Getting noted here in January. The 26th of January. So, nice. uh, you know, so I've got them, you know, so far ready two months in advance. You know, having that buffer is great because, you know, if you need to go on holiday and you don't, you really want to disconnect, you've got that buffer. If you're ill, 
you've got that buffer, you know, having them scheduled in advance as well. So, yeah, I mean, that's really useful. And obviously, you've got, you know, my email, you've got my number. Just just ask me if you have any you know, tips as well because there's, there's, there's a few other things I want to share. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll share them afterwards, you know, with yourself, what you can, you know, use to really enhance yeah, the process. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for being so kind. Thank no, you. no problem. Okay, so yeah, going back, uh, so, so that's my more specific questions done. I have some, you know, generic questions, you know, fun ones that I like to ask. So starting with the first one, what would you rather have, five million upfront or half a million a year for the rest of your life and why? Um... And let's say U.S. dollars, you know, just to keep it. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Sure, U.S. dollars. Um, I would definitely go with the second version mm-hmm. because there is a continuous supply and stability uh, and predictability, whereas in the first scenario, uh, I have a sort of a limited amount sort of a limited amount because that amount is just huge um but still it's limited so i would definitely go for stability and uh, and um, predictability of payment because that's what we're talking about instead of having one big chunk of money and then just blowing it or maybe not even blowing it on stuff but it's limited so of course, more comfortably would be to have a continuous supply. Continuous supply. More desirable, so to say. Yeah, at yeah. least in my opinion, that's what I would choose. Yeah. Interesting questions. Yeah. And I think, you know, it depends on, you know, what stage of, you know, your life you're at, how old you are as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, because, you know, different people I speak to, I think most do say half a million a year, but. There, there is the one that has said, you know, five million up front. You know, usually the ones that are on the younger end of the scale say half a million. The ones again, not old. I haven't had anyone that's yeah. been old on the podcast yet. But the slightly older, maybe more seasoned ones, they're probably more likely to say five million. Again, not all of them, but just some of them. Okay, yeah. so makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, it also depends, as you said, to your point. It really depends on where you are in your life. Mm-hmm. Let's just say you have somebody sick in your family. Probably would definitely want to go with uh, an emergent uh, one-time big amount of money because that solves your big issue now. Yeah. But then again, maybe the second version is not, it doesn't cover everything or you have some some big plan or whatever. It can be that. Yeah, yeah, of course. None of them are wrong, of course. No, no, of course. It's more about your mindset and how you're leveraging both of them because you could easily waste half a million a year and do nothing with it or waste um, five million up front. But likewise, in both scenarios, you could do a lot with it. You know, you could, you know, invest the five million or most of it when you get it and you could just be bringing you in half a million plus the initial investment as well that's growing. Uh, or the half million, you could be enjoying it a bit, you know, investing it, growing it, learning, and all that stuff. But so, yeah, it, it, it depends on how you approach it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Favorite ball game? Favorite ball game? No, board game, sorry. Board game. Yeah. Uh, favorite board game? Uh, I've been playing, uh, my girlfriend has 
been showing me uh, quite a bit of board games lately. Uh, favorite board game? I don't know if I have a favorite board game. I I have a have tough time saying favorite something because I I usually tend to like many things in that in that category. So I. It's tough to pick because it's different experiences and they're all nice, you know, the top ones at least. Yeah. Uh, something that I've played since childhood is backgammon. Okay. Um, and sometimes chess as well, but mostly it was backgammon. It's, um, I don't know in other uh, countries or other cultures how, how much of that game they play, but at least here locally, um, I grew up learning that game and other games related to that. Uh, I would say that has been the most continuous board game and Monopoly, I would say, maybe. But yeah. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a kid, we had a bunch of wooden board games. I think we had one that can convert into multiple different board games. And one of the ones was Backgammon. I remember trying to play it. And I always found it a bit, you know, confusing because I was always a good chess player. It is. It is confusing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was always a good chess player. I played chess often and, you know, played checkers if somebody wanted to play that. I enjoyed that as well. But I overall preferred, you know, know, preferred chess. But yeah, I think with the thing with backgammon, nobody that I knew that I wanted to play with really knew how to play it. So I was just either playing on my own on the computer or trying to play with someone who didn't know i didn't know we're young and we're just trying to figure things out and yeah whereas with chess there was plenty of people around that at least knew the rules even if they weren't good at it they knew the rules of how to actually play whereas with backgammon uh and because you know all the pieces they look the same pretty much don't they whereas with chess black and white of course yeah whereas with chess you know okay there's a queen you know there's a king You, you know there's some there are roles attributed to 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 each piece, so to say. Yes, to the same piece multiple times. Yeah, and, and like you know the weather, and even if you don't know the actual names, just based on the starting position, you can be like, okay, that's the castle because it's starting yes, in the bottom, exactly. you know, left and right corner. Or they're the pawns because they're the ones at the front. Like it was a lot easier to associate. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I have not thought about backgammon for years. I mean, years and years. But now that you mentioned it, I wouldn't mind going back and trying to learn that and have a go. Because, again, I've got, yeah. you know, a, a multi-wooden set thing and, you know, it's got backgammon. So, yeah, I, I think I'm going to go and yeah, try and learn that's, it. That's the one I'm talking about. That's the old school, old school stuff. Yeah. The, yeah, the wooden set. But uh, what I discovered recently, and I knew of this since many years, but I forgot about it. It's the game of Ur. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure if you know of it. It's one of the most oldest games. The game the of what's it called? Of Ur. U R. U R. Okay, I've just had a quick yeah. Google. I, I mean, I. Well, it's a super simple board game where you need to move pieces, uh, like round pieces, in black and white, and you need to move them through some some some. Uh, how should I say? Um, swim lanes particular swim lanes and you can take each other out and you need to plan and it's super engaging and it's fun so i would recommend uh, you or anybody else try that out you can find it online for free to play you can play with somebody else as well 
like I can play locally with somebody else on my laptop. And probably I can also play online with other people. Okay. Depends on which one you find. Yeah. Okay, but the actual nice. board game, the actual board game, physical one, I think it's very, very engaging and interesting. Yeah, probably I mean, the more people you have, probably the more interesting it gets. I mean, I've just had a quick Google, and I've just gone on to the shopping section on Google. It it seems to be a relatively expensive board game. Yeah, as I said, it's if that's the most accessible version, like the online digital version of it, mm. it's probably free. I played it for free many times by now. Uh, but if you're really keen on having it like a physical format, probably you need to drop some money. Uh, but it depends on everybody's passion and, you know, how much they like that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, I'll try it online first before, uh, you know, spend, you know, this much money. Because, you know, with chess, you can, you know, spend probably five, ten pounds and get a board. And then you can you, then you can obviously spend thousands of pounds, but you can get cheap boards. Same with checkers, same with, you know, a bunch of stuff. But with Game of Earth, it doesn't seem so. It seems a bit more specialist. But I definitely check out an online version. You can create a paper version of it, a cardboard version. Yeah. Like many people do. Okay. You just copy the spaces and the board, and basically you're done. You can even play with coins or, I don't know, buttons or something, whatever you come up with. It doesn't even have to be round. You know what I mean? Yeah, just something to distinguish it. Okay, that, yeah. that's nice to learn about it because I never heard of you know, that game, the game of. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. It was nice to learn about a new one. So. Favorite video game? Favorite video game. I'm going to say the current and the past favorite video game. Uh, but yeah, that's why I played them because I, I really liked them so much. So the last one I played was Assassin's Creed um, Odyssey. Odyssey. Okay. Um, I I looked at um, Valhalla. The new one, and of course the latest release from from them. Um, and now, right now, currently, I'm playing something a lot more relaxing, so to say. Uh, sometimes in co-op, sometimes uh, just on my own missions. It's called SnowRunner. It's a very interesting evolution from an earlier game from from the, the same company called MudRunner. Uh, it's a game where you have variety of trucks and areas and maps, and you need to basically transport transport all types of, of a variety of types of materials to do some sort of missions. And you get currency, and you can buy more trucks, and you can unlock and parts. And it's relaxing because I just get to drive and look at nice pictures and animations while I'm kind of. Um, you know, trying to get away from from work mindset and take a take a mental break. Uh, it helps. It's relaxing. Okay. And uh, here's a question that I, I always love asking, and it's it's a nice one to hear people's opinions on it. Does money buy you happiness? Absolutely Why? not. Absolutely not for me. Uh, I also don't work for money, so. Um, I would say, uh, in a funny way, companies might have a hard time uh, keeping me uh, because uh, if I don't look at the pay, uh, then I would have to look at other things like culture and psychological safety and, you know, many other things. Okay. 
and I'm not sure that answers your question. I mean, not exactly. I mean, okay, no is the answer, but you know, why would you say, you know, money doesn't make you happy? For me, at least, um, the material side of things is less important than than the inner side, so to say. Um, I learned about this quote long time ago uh, to try to build a kingdom within versus the kingdom outside so the more i noticed that i would focus on getting material objects and gains more than the more than the necessary stuff it didn't really lead anywhere it's just having more stuff uh but in comparison to building something from within for yourself at least to start with uh, and together with other people it's it's so rewarding and it's it it it's a very alive experience and it makes you feel that you have a purpose and that purpose is one that you are aligned with because objects and material things can just go in a second such as us of course but then again if that ever were to happen um and when it will happen people i think remember other people and think of other people instead of their mercedes or uh, i don't know any other material gain i'm not saying don't invest in that i'm just saying be smart about it and be be fair with yourself and maybe if you cannot help other people um in the process that's that's also great okay yeah i think that's fair enough so I think that's a good point that you make that, you know, those stuff is fine to focus on and to go for, but it's not the, it's not everything. And, you know, obviously having a life of, you know, being able to help others, help yourself, be happy, be healthy. Yes. And first ha- yourself. Yes. You and have meaningful re- you know, relationships as well. Because, you know, one of the things that a lot of people can do, you know, most people in the world you know, is, you know, just be healthier, you know. Like, yes, you know, and it starts from, it It really starts from, from our way of thinking and the mind. Yeah, like, you know, eat less or eat better or, you know, eat more fruit instead of chocolate or, you know, eat at better times. You might even not be yeah, changing. Yeah, be more effective. Be more effective at preparing your meals or yeah. be more... Um, assertive when you go shopping or be more decisive when you go shopping you know so you don't end up getting too many sweets in your basket and you want to stick to you know just one chocolate bar per week or i w- i don't know what the, what other people uh choose yeah of course of course and okay so that's you know my question is done just one last one what advice would you give to someone that's looking to become a tester or you know a scrum master or you know get into the industry like yourself what advice would you give um i think it starts everything starts from curiosity and will but most importantly curiosity if you can if you have this type of um skill already identified in yourself that's the most important one that's um i'm a very curious person by nature 
And you can imagine that got me into trouble many times in the past. Uh, so learning from that, trying to make it into a positive learning tool, I started not to to be curious about everything anymore. And because, of course, the nature of my mind and the way I, I think and probably was brought up is I have to learn something all the time. So not focusing on everything and just like laser pointing this curiosity uh, pipeline, so to say this vacuum, it really worked like a vacuum. So I would say curiosity is the most important first thing that you would have to have. And I would recommend having because it's the one thing that you start from. And it's the one thing that keeps you going all the time. I agree. You know, curiosity you know, be willing to question. But I think you made a good point where if you're too curious or too openly curious, it's not the, you know, the best thing either. Because, you know, there's a time... Maybe, 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 yeah, yeah. It it really depends how you how you position yourself when you are curious. Like, what are you curious about? Yeah. You know, you don't necessarily have to remember or know all the different types of ants or how how they make babies or, mm. you know, such in-depth knowledge that you don't really get to talk to people about. Yeah, yeah. And, and also it's about the time and place. Of, and, you know, what is the knowledge that you may potentially gain from being curious in the moment? Like, what's it actually going to you know, Everything you have to gain. Yeah, like, what's it going to, you know, provide for you? Like, is it even meaningful because i've met people where they're just like it's almost annoying where they're just constantly asking you know questions or trying to it's almost like they're trying to prove people wrong and instead of being curious they're trying to prove people wrong and that's the wrong approach because the person might be right or you might be wrong and i don't think that's necessarily the right type of curiosity or even curiosity itself you know, when they're just, you know, or, you know, or they're just not asking it in the right time or f- to the right people, because sometimes it can be a bit sensitive, you know, the sensitive topics as well. Uh, 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 and yeah, I, f- I think that's not good. And I think sometimes people can hide behind the mask of, you know, I was just being curious. I'm just trying to find out. And it's like, no, sometimes you're just being, you know, like an asshole. Like uh, I met people where that's literally all they're being, even though, They'll say, "Oh, yeah, I'm just curious." It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it wasn't curiosity. Like what you're saying, what you're asking in the moment you're asking, you know, it's 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 hurtful. And you know, when they're constantly pushing it because they haven't got an answer. Yeah, I, I I really know what you're saying, and it's um, it's something a lot of people go through, and it's what you see as an output from other people as well uh anywhere it doesn't even matter the industry or or the scenario uh but i think it um after looking at people and looking at anthropology and social dynamics and everything it really seems that um there's a lack of a variety of skills but to be more precise like curiosity is a skill if you think about it mm. and like any other skill you have to train it you have to practice being curious. You're not just curious. Some people are by nature. Yeah. Just because the, that's how they're brought up or that's how they think or 
that's their nature, default nature. But to people that need to foster and adopt curiosity and learn how to be curious, um, you know, there's that expression, practice makes perfect. Well, I think practice makes permanent. Mm. And there is no perfect. What is that? I have nothing more to learn from that. So I want to, to do a very good job instead of doing a perfect job doing the best job I can every single time instead of aiming for the perfect job or perfect output or perfect way to do things. It's we, we self-sabotage a lot, a lot. And it's one of the topics I, I plan to cover uh, in depth in, uh, in my podcast. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that would be definitely a good topic to cover in your podcast. Yeah, yeah you're right. Like, people... No, I've done it myself, you know, definitely do self-sabotage, even if it's as simple as, you know, creating a list of tasks to do for the day. You know, let's say I create eight, you know, 10 tasks. Let's say they're feasible as well. So let's not even, let's rule out the, you know, the idea, oh, I can't even physically get them done and I'm just not managing it properly. But let's say they're technically no. feasible. Then at the, I'll get to the end of the day and I've done six. Instead of, you know, kicking myself and saying, I haven't done the other four, you know, better to reflect and say, you know, why didn't I do the other four? Okay, something came up, unavoidable. I was only able to do six. Fine, you know, continue tomorrow, you know, rinse and repeat. Or, you know, I could have managed things better or I could have cut certain things shorter, for example, rearranged. But again, you know, just knowing that it is a process because it's, it's like exercise. No matter how intense your exercise is for one day, it's not going to make that much difference in your life. Like you, you could lift all the weights in the world. You could do all the running, all the walking, all the cardio, all the whatever. Same with food. It doesn't matter how good your you know diet is for that one day. If you're not consistent. Exactly. And again, it's better to be, you know, 80% there in terms of diet every day than to be 100% there one day. Uh, Absolutely, just, uh, I, I completely agree. Yes, yeah. you know, same with exercise. It's better to you know walk a mile a day than to walk, you know, you know, f- for the rest of your life. Obviously, that's still very good, but like a mile a day for the rest of your life than to walk, I don't know, ten miles that one day or ten yeah. miles, you know, every month, for example, or every few months. It's you know being consistent with it and knowing that okay, you're gonna have hiccups. Things are going to come up. Things are going to go wrong. And that's just life in general. Yeah. And even for people that uh, have a disability with walking, mm-hmm. I would recommend just do some sort of physical movement as often as you can. But it has to be consistent. So that's why even going back to the curiosity point, that's why I put curiosity the first top skill to, to foster, to learn, and to practice. Because from curiosity, you get to learn what you like and what you don't like, what, what you can do when you can't. So then it becomes, you, you, you adopt consistency, you adopt reason, you adopt meaning, uh, resonance, and you see value. And then probably you start uh, adopting and doing that better and better. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. No. That's definitely, you know, a good way to, you know, live life. It's, I mean, it's, it's like development of a product. It's an iterative process. It takes time. You'll learn, 
your lifestyle, the people around you, what you want to achieve, how you want to live, your body, your the way you approach things is different and it will change and to everyone else. So you just iterate, you just figure something that works for you. But know that that may work for you for 10 years, but after that, you might need to change it. Like where exactly. change. Yeah. That's like, very well that you mentioned this. Yeah. So first it comes curiosity and what I'm trying myself to get to. And I always think I'm not there yet because I need to learn more um, because I'm curious. Mm. I'm curious to explore more. So I think if you can get to pair curiosity would change and understand change, the concept of change and what that means, um, then I think you're really, really good to go. Um, and I, I said this to my team as well in the past. Uh, we work with change a lot from clients with scope and, you know, the drill, of course. Of course. Yeah. So change can come from many, many areas. Um, I had a quote for them in a, in a summit that we did last year. Uh, for the entire team, and one of the topics was change management, how to how to improve and how to think of change and all these things. And there's one quote that really stood out and they really liked. Um, it goes like this: To respond to change means you need to show up prepared to do things differently each time. So there's a lot of meaning into just a sentence. I will say that again: To respond to change means you need to show up prepared to do things differently each time. Each time there's a change. You cannot assume that you already know, but you can be prepared mentally. You know, it's a way of thinking. I'll let you think about that for a second. It's, uh, it's quite, uh, it has quite a bit of meaning, and I'm actually curious how, how do you see change? Yeah, I mean, for me, change is... Knowing that things won't be perfect, things aren't perfect forever. Things have to, you know, alter, you know, change. Like, like by definition, for things to change, you know, the processes have to, you know, change. You know, for you to become better, you have to become different. Even if that's only a little bit different, you, you know, something has to, you know, change. So, if I want to be healthier. Something has to change. Even if I'm already healthy, if I want to be healthier, I need to change something. Whether that's I will do some exercise, I will do some dieting, I will maybe it's just meditation or you know some more positive style of you know thinking. But then also understanding the flip side that just because you are open to change doesn't mean you should always be trying to change and looking to change. And implement the change. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because it's like, you know, when we was talking about, you know, testing and, you know, all these management tools, for example, just because they're available to you and you can use them at any point doesn't mean you should do. You know, knowing when to use them, how to use them, because, like, you know, the note-taking application, you know. And the why. The why is the most important. Yes, like, you know, why are you trying to change? Because if you don't have a strong enough why, like a strong enough sort of narrative to strive for, then you're going to eventually say, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Especially if it's yeah. something that takes time. And it's and it, especially if it's something like exercise where that is an ongoing life, you know, you know, it's a forever process. 
Uh, so, so if you don't have a strong enough why, and that why might be health, that why might be to look better or to look a way that other people find more appealing, it might yeah. not be. Like I know people that aren't in the best shape, and then are or like I had a friend that who wasn't in the best shape. He was fat, and he wasn't. He used to eat really badly, and he didn't care. He genuinely had. Uh, as far as I'm aware, any concern about how other people felt about him in terms of the way he looks. Um, but when he got a dog, he, you know, he started walking not for himself, but for the dog. And he's, kept, dog, yeah. Yeah, and he's kept that up because he was a necessity for the dog and it's something he enjoys. As a result, he's lost a lot of weight. And he, yeah. and he you know, he looks better now. But again, it wasn't something he did specific yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but he understood that change had to occur because now he had a pet he had something that he had to change for mm-hmm. and he yeah. kept it up as a result yeah i i still encourage people to when they have like maybe scenarios like taking the pet having a new pet example um if you're adopting something new and you were not doing it before Try to look at that maybe when you can capture uh, yourself uh, doing that uh, and become aware of it. Um, it's also super helpful and healthy to to think, how is this helping me? How can I maximize value from this? Like, okay, I'm going to walk the dog. So, okay, I've identified that I'm probably going to lose, lose some weight. What am I going to do with that? You know, how does how will that level of fitness so to say will help me in six months because the dog's not gonna go away i'm gonna have it forever you know what i mean yeah so i'm gonna be more fit or up to a certain point of fitness uh and like you identify hey i could go on doing this and i couldn't do it before and i could actually start taking up running and or i could go much easier to the beach because guess what i'm not gonna be uh, as overweight as i was before so there are a bunch of different things that you can already identify if you if you take the opportunity, if you become aware of the opportunity of moments like this. It doesn't have to be about a pet. It can be about anything. But like a two-minute reflection, it can help a lot. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I think that's part of change is reflection you know, being able to, you know, look back and then not being, I think a lot of people are afraid to change back from the change, you know, uh, you know, afraid to revert because it's almost like they are saying to the world, I was wrong about this. And even if you were wrong, like I see so many people that all do something, you can tell it's probably not the best thing, but because they've gone down that route, they just don't want to go back now because it's a reversal of what they've done, whether it's career, whether it's, you know, relationship, whether it's something to do with the house or car or exercise or whatever it is, instead of saying, you know what, I was wrong about this, or there was a different way I could have approached you, or I should just go back. They rather just hammer on at this one thing, you know, the same way, just because they don't want to revert back and have that embarrassment effectively from other people yeah it's as i was saying before it's so much related to our internal psychology and how we view the world and 
how we sabotage ourselves and what our strengths and values are. Um, but to go back to, to, to this a bit and maybe uh, close off your question, um, something that can really help people, uh, at least in my recommendation, is exploring the why through Simon Sinek's book, like The Golden Circle, uh, if you know of that. Um, and related to change and how to think of change and how to, it's a simple, easy to read book and pretty straightforward. It's a book called Switch uh, by Chip and Dan Heath. Um, it's a blue cover book. Um, I, yeah, I have many more recommendations, uh, but uh, since we're only talking about the why and how to think of change, I would recommend it, looking into these books. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely get you know what I'll do because I'm gonna we're gonna wrap up the podcast now. I'll get your socials, you know, anything in a, any other portfolio, any other links that you want to share. I'll get any book recommendations that you want to share that you think will be useful for people that have listened to this episode podcast. I'll put that in the sure. description so you know all the listeners out there can check this out. So yeah, I just want to thank Vlad for taking the time to come on, talk to me for two hours. And you know, uh, you know, it's been a good podcast. You know, I've had developers, I've had designers, first Scrum master and tester on the podcast, so it's good to have you know that experience talked about as well. So yeah, just thank you, Vlad, you know, for the time that you spent today. You are very, very welcome. I can I, I now notice that it's been two hours. Well, wow. it's been a very, very nice experience and a very pleasant chat um thank you for the invitation first of all um to to help on your description as well uh, i did those in the past uh however since i'm with amber i'm no longer doing a scrum master or any tester role um as i said before i'm trying to expand my knowledge i'm trying to grow and i'm trying to go to other different levels of um of knowledge so to say you know, an experience. Yeah. So yeah, that that helped a lot. Um, but to to your point as well, um, I really liked your questions, and I think um, you have uh, a pretty good, uh, successful podcast here. Yeah, thank it's you. nice episodes. So keep on doing that, and uh, thank you everybody for listening. And yeah, thank you for for the opportunity to to have this uh, discussion and uh, share some ideas. Yeah, thank you for those kind words, Vlad. And, you know, just before we wrap up, I just want to say, you know, that's one thing I did notice, that you had a wide variety of experience, and it wasn't like, oh, you was jumping from one junior to another junior to another junior. Like, you was getting senior in each one, but then you're you know, going to a different, you know, aspect. And I feel like, you know, you're tester, then you're scrum master, but then, obviously, I feel like, you know, this the knowledge that you've gained from testing and using certain tools you can take that over and then you know absolutely, what absolutely yeah. absolutely you can and of course i would recommend people to, to just start out with something mm -hmm. uh, and you will figure it out along the way uh what you would like to do and um where you what you're good at basically yeah it's it's been a very interesting and helpful learning experience so far it still is um yeah so yeah i'm having quite a bit of fun 
That sounds good. In a in a different way now, of course. In a different way. Of course. Yeah, I mean it's good to experience new stuff. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, thank you, Vlad. Thank you everyone for listening. If you you know want to check out the other podcast episodes, feel free to you know on your relevant platforms, Spotify, Google, Apple, all those platforms, and appreciate a five star review on whatever platform you're using. So thank you very much and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.